We're looking at 2 Corinthians. You'll notice that I'm jumping ahead. We were going approximately one passage per chapter in the first five Sundays that I was here. But now I wanted to give you some sense of the climax of the book in chapters 11 and 12. And I want to begin at the end of chapter 11, verse 31 and following, and then into chapter 12. And the text will come from the first part of chapter 12. And you'll see also an outline in your bulletin on the other side of your prayer page. If you wish to follow along, talking about Paul's thorn in the flesh from chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. But for now, we'll read chapter 11, 31 to 12, 21. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which a man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weakness. Though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's end the reading of God's holy word here at this time as we look at this great theme of Paul's thorn in the flesh. Once again, the outline is in the insert of the reverse side of your prayer and announcement page. Paul's thorn in the flesh, the cause and the result. Shall we pray? Lord, you alone can change darkness into light. You alone can change sorrow into joy and hardship into blessing. And therefore, Lord, we are absolutely amazed at your great love. We pray, Lord, that we may rejoice in your goodness, even as we are weak, that you may be shown as being strong. In Jesus' name, amen. You can imagine that Paul, being an apostle, could do anything that he wanted. You might imagine somehow or other that he could walk on water, 
and escape from every trial and break his bonds in prison and show himself to be powerful wherever he went. After all, you might say, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who was sent by him. But he was sent to suffer. This, of course, is the reality of every Christian, that we should not think that we are greater than our Lord, for he came to suffer, that we might be saved, we suffer, that God might be glorified. Paul had all kinds of troubles, and I won't go over to read with you the litany of troubles that he has back in chapters 10 and 11 to see all the difficulties that God granted to him, including where he talks about in danger from the Gentiles in the city and the wilderness that see and false brethren and so on. Paul had all kinds of troubles. Now there were those who looked at this weak man and said, how can you follow such an apostle? How can it be telling how can he be talking about the truth when he's always in so much trouble? He was not a super apostle. He was not immune to danger and stoning and troubles of all sorts. In fact, he always needed God's power. Now, Paul had to oppose these teachers, if you look back at the previous chapter or so, who were Judaizers, that is, they wanted to enslave people all over again to the ceremonial law and thus bring them under salvation by works because they would have to turn away from Christ to neglect or to reattach themselves to these Old Testament ceremonies and the salvation by works that the Pharisees were so fond of. And therefore, they were false apostles. They said, we are stronger better looking, more powerful, and in less trouble than Paul had. And he calls them money-hungry, power-seeking, face-slapping, pseudo-servants. Paul describes them in exactly that way in a previous chapter. And Paul was forced, forced to boast of his apostolic authority, but in a backhanded way, a way that he was not really boasting. It can be called a boastless boast in which he would boast in the Lord. He would talk of his greatest privilege as an apostle and as those as the one to whom God had revealed himself in a special way and also his greatest weakness at the exact same time. Paul, however, is a bit embarrassed to have to do so. He wishes that he didn't have to tell others about his apostleship It should be something that should, in a way, go without saying. But he talks here not only about a special revelation that God gave him, but also it's what's called a thorn in the flesh. Now, we still use this term today in some ways. You might say, well, this guy at school or at work has been a thorn in my side. It means a pain that doesn't go away. He's always bugging me. I can never get away from him. Or the lion, as Aesop's fable talks about, with a thorn in his foot. And remember, the little boy rescues the lion by taking the thorn out of his foot, and the lion is forever grateful. The problem is, Paul still had some kind of a thorn or 
a troublesome problem that was not removed, even though he asked God to do that. Well, what is the cause of this thorn? The background is given to us in verses 2 to 4, the great revelation to Paul. Now, there are actually some people who don't think that Paul was even talking about himself because he talks about himself as, I know a man. Now, we know it is he because, for example, in verse 7, he admits it to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So he is, in a way, apologizing for the fact that he has to tell you about this revelation. I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. This man was caught up into paradise. I don't know how, but God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which a man may not utter. Now, this is 14 years ago, and he hadn't evidently breathed a word about it. Nobody knew about it for 14 years. You'd think it might be handy that he could say, well, you know, I was a persecutor of the church, but God did give me this revelation last night. Well, you know how preachers sometimes on the radio love to talk about how God spoke to them directly and told them it's time to raise some money so I can buy a jet or whatever. You know, so people could easily use some alleged privilege to get what they want. And Paul didn't want to be seen as a shyster or a guy who was trying to pull something off on the church. So he is careful and he didn't say anything about it. And now he can barely talk about it as if it happened to him. He's amazed that this thing actually happened. And it's mysterious. And it is embarrassing, you might say. So we might say, where did this happen? Well, it does say, again, rather mysteriously, that he was caught up to the third heaven. This means it's a spiritual occurrence. He even admits that it might have been in the body or out of the body. Who knows? But he was taken the third heaven. Now, that's a way of describing the cosmos above us. The first heaven is the clouds. We can see the clouds marching by, not too far above us. And then there are the stars in the firmament of the heavens. And then above that, we have the third heaven, the spiritual place of God's abode, sometimes also called paradise. So Deuteronomy says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens. So something like that. God created everything that there is, but he dwells in this third heaven, as it's called, and it's also called paradise. And we know this from when Jesus died. He said to the thief who believed in him, remember, today you shall be with me in paradise. So that's what he says in verse 3. I know that this man was caught up into paradise, or the third heaven. So we find how God is there in a special way, and somehow God gave him a vision or a revelation of himself and of certain things that cannot be told, things that were given to Paul alone. Now, of course, we realize that Paul might have needed this encouragement Am I really going to go to heaven? Or is all this suffering for nothing? And 
God gave this to Paul earlier in his ministry to help him to make it through, to know that someday he would be there forever in paradise with the Lord. Glimpses of Christ himself, risen maybe from the dead, very much possible, or glimpses in the presence of God, of the future that he would have to strengthen him. There were times when God actually told him of the future through prophecies and prophets that were given to the church in the book of Acts. But he also says that there are very many mysteries that we might happen to not know. And God gave him a secret knowledge of certain mysteries. This is a dangerous thing to say because there were false apostles who were also boasting of something similar, only they were faking it. Paul really did receive a glimpse of heaven ahead of time. And knowing that he could say to the Corinthian church, as he did in chapter 4, the glory to be revealed to us does not compare to the light and momentary afflictions through which we are passing. And he knew that more than anybody else, perhaps. The glory to be revealed to them, he had already seen. Think of that privilege and how hard it must have been not to say anything about it for all those years. Now, it's not something he was free to talk about. And that made it all the more difficult. If you really heard these things, tell us what they were. He says, nope, can't tell you. It's not something I'm going to use as kind of a secret knowledge to pass on to you. It might be astounding. It's not really the point, however. The point of the revelation is not how privileged he was, though he was. Rather, the point is, despite these privileges of being given a glimpse of glory, he was still in his weakness. Now, why would that be? Well, we see it in verses 5 to 7. On behalf of this man, and of course he means himself, I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. I know a man who saw these things. It's almost as if it didn't really matter to me, or it doesn't count that it happened to me. But it is something in which I will not boast. I will simply talk about my weaknesses. Now, can a man, again, you can imagine, the next day, Paul could have said, Now, I want, you to t- I want to tell you folks, I, yes, I, I have been in paradise. What do you think of that? And people would go, Wow. You've been in paradise. You must be something special. But he doesn't say anything. And he speaks in the third person. Even though he had that true near-death experience that some people talk about as having received. Verse 6 says, Though if I wish to boast, I would not be a fool. He could boast because it did happen to him. I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it that no one may think more of me that he sees in me or hears from me Again, that kind of gives it away that he did experience these things and he's the one who is the man of whom he speaks. Paul could have said so earlier and legitimately. It did happen. But even without saying anything, it would be very easy, and he didn't say anything for 14 years, it been very easy to think to himself, well, nobody else knows this, but I, I have been in paradise. Maybe I am something special. Maybe there is something about you that you consider special, but you've never 
told anybody about it. You probably have, but maybe you haven't. Maybe you can brag about good grades in school and whether or not you were salutatorian or valedictorian or whatever in your high school class. Maybe you're on the honor roll and then it's posted on the bulletin board. I don't know. Maybe you have awards in sports. Perhaps you've been been called the most likely to succeed. If you happen to have a yearbook in whatever school you happen to go to, it's so easy to brag. If you can't brag about yourself, you'll brag about your family. Did you know my dad is an engineer and he works on rocket projects here in Huntsville? Well, yes, so is everybody else. But still, you know, I mean, it's easy to brag about something about yourself or someone close to you. But let's just say you keep it secret. Let's just say you don't tell anybody about what you've done or what your dad does or whatever. Even if you don't, you know about it. I am special. Bragging internally that you are one of the best people you've ever known. If only anybody else would finally admit it. This is the kind of stuff that goes on in our heads. All of us have this problem, don't we? So therefore, even though Paul never told anybody about this vision, he could have been secretly conceited or proud about it. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, this is verse 7, a thorn, here we are, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now I hope you know conceited is not a very good word. You're conceited. You think you're special. It means proud or boasting or sometimes the Bible uses the term puffed up. It's like you're puffing out your chest. Oh yes, I'm important. You just don't know it. I sometimes see people arrested or pulled over on the side of the road in some YouTube videos and they say, do you know who I am? I am on the city council. And the officer goes, I don't care. You are speeding. I mean, you see, we try to use something about ourselves to brag and boast. Well, the result was that Paul had to be given a thorn in the flesh. I've already mentioned it. Some kind of physical weakness. He calls it a messenger of Satan. This doesn't mean that God wasn't in control. Certainly, he could have removed this thorn in the flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan, similar to what happens in the book of Job, where Job asks God for permission to bring hardship remember, into Job's life, and he loses his family, his children, his health, and so forth. God does allow it. He is sovereign. But still, Paul says, a messenger of Satan, it was something hard, was something difficult, hard to endure, and we simply are not really sure what it is, even though God planned it clearly and could have prevented it. So Paul decides that he has to pray to God about this. He is not sure he can stand it. Now, we have to start searching our own minds and hearts. We're not apostles. We haven't received special visions. But there might be things about you that might keep you humble, that might help you to realize you're not as great as you think you are. And that's a good thing. So in verse 8, it says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now, once again, I doubt that means that he said, 
please deliver me, please deliver me, please deliver me, amen. When Paul talks about prayer, he's no longer, no, no doubt, thinking about what Jesus did when he prayed. Sometimes Jesus prayed all night long. It's possible that's what happened to Paul. He spent a season of prayer, a time of prayer, a dedicated portion of his life to plead with God, please let me to be delivered from whatever this problem is. Now, we don't know, and in a way, we probably should leave it alone, although it's most likely physical because it says in the flesh, so something in his body. One of the best guesses is his eyesight. In other words, he was blinded on the road to Damascus by the Lord. And later on in Galatians, he says, you, if it were possible, you would have given your eyes to me. Meaning, he might have always wanted to have this better eyes. Maybe he never was fully healed. He was always reminded that once he was blind, and now he can see spiritually, but he still, maybe his eyes were ugly to look at. Maybe they had a discharge of some sort. Maybe he was part of what people couldn't stand looking at Paul about. I mean, who is this guy? He's got this problem. Maybe it was really obvious, in other words, to other people that he had this problem as well as to himself. And so people might have said, you have got to be kidding. You're following the Apostle Paul. This guy? This guy's an apostle? You have got to be kidding me. Now, don't forget, that's exactly what happened to Jesus. This guy is the Messiah. We know him. He was a carpenter's son. He was raised in Nazareth, didn't, she, didn't the Messiah say, or didn't God say the Messiah is coming out of Bethlehem? Of course he did, but they didn't know that. So Jesus had to be pegged as one of those rough and tumble Galileans who are used to being fishermen and carpenters and working with their hands, not the lofty priests and scribes of Jerusalem to whom people looked up. So therefore, the Apostle Paul was simply like Jesus. He preached in weakness, though the apostolic power of the Holy Spirit was also evident in him as it was with the Savior. Well, the reason why we really shouldn't speculate possibly is perhaps he wants to also apply that principle to ourselves. What is it about you? It could be something physical or something your appearance or something about your personality perhaps or something about maybe even a tendency to be a certain way that rubs people the wrong way. And yet God uses you anyway. I like to think of famous detectives or fictional detectives at least who always had some kind of weakness even though they were pretty clever. An older series I like is called Monk. Some of you might have seen it. He's a San Francisco detective, and he is a guy who can't stand one little thing out of place. He has to touch every light pole that he passes. He has to straighten up every frame in the wall. He has to count his dishes and his silverware before he will eat, and it drives him and others absolutely crazy. And it's a bit off to be that particular, no offense, if some of you are that way, okay? But guess what? Being that particular means he notices when anything is out of place. Something that the criminal forgot to fix before he left the room. And Monk goes, there it is. I can see it. 
show that you might not have seen is called House. He's a famous doctor who can diagnose patients very cleverly, but he has serious weaknesses. He has pain that he can't get rid of, and he's hooked on narcotics even though he's a doctor. And he sometimes can barely function, but he figures out stuff that other people can't figure out. An older one you probably know of is Columbo. He looks like a hobo. He's dressed in a long kind of dirty overcoat, and he drives an old car that barely runs, and he pretends he doesn't know anything. And he interviews the bad guy, and he figures out who it is, but he doesn't let them know right away. And he says, oh, one more thing, Mr. Jones, I almost forgot to tell you. And you don't take him seriously, but he is figuring it all out. And you see, I think that's kind of the same idea. We might have weaknesses, but God might use us despite or even through those weaknesses, those problems. And if you think about any Christian, and let's take examples of any pastor or elder that you might know, they've all got their weaknesses of some sort, and you might be tempted to dismiss them. Oh, pastor so-and-so is this way. I don't even know why he's a pastor. Or elder so-and-so is that way. I don't know why in the world God made him a leader in this church, and use that as an excuse to kind of do what you want. Whatever the weaknesses are, and of course you need to think about yourself. You who are so easily able to see the faults of others, and Jesus talks about taking the log out of your own eye before you try to get the speck out of somebody else's eye. What is the log in your eye? The thing that everybody else knows, but you don't want to admit it's true of you. What is your thorn in the flesh. Do you even know that you have one? Do you even know you have any weaknesses? Come on. We've all got them. And what is it? And finally, is it working? Are you recognizing the fact that you have weaknesses and that God is using you despite those weaknesses or using the pastors or the elders, or the deacons, whoever, or the Sunday school teachers or whoever, or parents in their families, despite their weaknesses, do you know God will still use you, even though your children probably know your weaknesses too? Well, the reason why you have those weaknesses is in order that you might look to God and to his power. He said to me, now this is after he prays three times, probably a long period of time, each time. Maybe he spends a long time praying and God says no. He says, well, that was one time. Let me try again. Please, God. He says, no. Third time, please, God, no. He said to me, here's the explanation why he said no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That indicates to me that they knew what this weakness was. He wasn't even going to mention it. He knows. They know. He knows. And he says, I don't care because God is going to use me anyway. Good thing. God will use you anyway. Now, if it's a sin, you need to turn away from it. I'm not saying we should coddle our sins or be glad that we have some kind of sin that we can't get rid of. No, we should get rid of sin. We should hate sin. But if something is besetting us, causing us problems, and we just can't get rid of it, whatever it is, we want to be able to have God say to us, my grace 
is sufficient. I would even say, and the reason why I chose this passage to end the series, is in a way, it's the theme of the book. It's God's undeserved love, grace is. It's a gift of God. The word grace simply means gift. Christ is our gift. And Christ is the beginning in the middle and the end of our salvation. We saw in our inquirers class, God planned our salvation from eternity, freely so. That's why it's a sheer gift of God's eternal plan. Secondly, it's performed in history through Jesus Christ. He is God made man. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who they, though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor. This is in Second Corinthians also that you, through his poverty, might be rich. And this grace is also promised throughout our lives into the future. The foundation is of grace. The building is of grace. The capstone is of grace because Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church. Therefore, we should admit where we are weak because when you are weak, then you are strong. You ever find somebody never admitting any kind of a fault or weakness, and it drives you crazy because everybody knows what it is. These things are written for our learning, as the rest of the Bible is. Or do you still think the Christian life is about you and how wonderful you are? It's about God and how wonderful He is. I hope I don't have to tell you that, but we've got to forget it again and again until we come back to say, Oh, Lord, Why did you save me? God, first of all, needs to convict us of sin. And that's the first thing you need as we go through our outline here. The power of grace is shown, first of all, in conviction of sin. God brings us to the knowledge of our utter sinfulness. You can imagine Paul might have said, I am, as he did say, the chief of sinners. Do you tremble at God's punishment? Do you know you deserve eternal condemnation? Or do you kind of soft pedal and say, well, I don't believe I deserve eternity in hell. Or somehow or other, maybe even my sin has kept me from salvation. Maybe I'm too great of a sinner. Well, you're a great sinner, but God loves sinners and saves them. What must you do? You must believe what Paul says here that God's power is perfected in your weakness. You're supposed to believe in Christ. Oh, you greatest sinner. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Secondly, there is continued conflict with sin. Do you think once we admit we're sinners, that Satan leaves us alone? It didn't happen to Paul. Do you think that once we become Christians, we become immune to temptation? that we're no longer going to sin, you and I both know better than that, don't we? We even want to do what God wants us to do, but we find ourselves unable to do it. As Paul says at the end of chapter 7 of Romans, who shall deliver me out of this body of sin? Do you cry to God every day out of desperate need of him? Lord, I need you, as the hymn says, every hour, every hour. I need you. Peter should have prayed that prayer so that his faith would not be so weak. But Christ prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. And Jesus Christ is praying for you 
as he prayed in the great high priestly prayer in John 17, keep them from the evil one. Christ is praying for you. Keep him, keep her from the evil one. And therefore, don't you cooperate with the devil. Listen to what God's word says. Resist temptation. It even says in the Bible, resist the devil and he will flee from you because of the power of Christ in you. So conflict with sin. You are the one who has become more than conquerors through him who has loved you because his grace is sufficient for you in the midst of conflict with sin. Thirdly, bearing affliction. That might be a lot of what Paul is talking about here. Whatever troubles you tend to have, whatever it is, we must suffer with him in order to reign with him. But human strength cannot endure it. Lord, get me out of here. Lord, I'm not sure I can stand this much longer. How much am I going to have to live with this fear of COVID or the next disease? What is it, monkeypox? I don't know. One thing after the other. How difficult is it going to be for you the rest of your life? It will be difficult. And let me just tell you, it doesn't get any easier. And we find that our faith is continually tested. We must have almighty power. And the Holy Spirit must be our comforter, even as we've talked about Daniel, actually Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace, when one like the Son of Man was with them, so that their clothes were not singed, nor did they smell of any smoke, and God delivered them out of the fire, even out of death, because precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I lost my mother and father. They were aged 95 and 92, I think it was, when the Lord finally took them. It was a long life for each of them. I was thankful they were believers. But once in a while, my son, who has a tender heart, will say, but Dad, they were so wonderful, and I missed them. How come you don't miss them as much? And I have to say, I don't know why exactly, but I had a hard time grieving, and I hope it's because I don't grieve as the world grieves. I mean, we have tears, of course, but we also know that we'll see our loved ones again if we're in the Lord, right? So Christian funerals can be places of joy as well as sorrow. That momentary light affliction of losing our loved ones or suffering loss is far overshadowed by that eternal weight of glory which Paul also saw more than others. My grace is sufficient for you in your conviction of sin, in your conflict with sin, and your bearing affliction in this life. Notice that Paul prayed, and he was not healed. There are some who would tell you in the health and wealth gospel that you're not healthy and you're not wealthy because you haven't prayed with enough faith. Well, what about Paul? You want to tell me he didn't have enough faith? You don't tell me he wasn't close and walking with the Lord. Of course he was. But he was strong in the power of God, not in his own strength. God sometimes wills that we should be afflicted for our own good. And it would be unfaithful of him, believe it or not, and you need to believe it, to heal all of our diseases before the second coming. We are still sinful, and we live in a sinful world. Though we are forgiven and empowered to live with difficulty, we must remember that it does not mean that he has left us. 
I will never leave you and forsake you. If you're on your deathbed or you're having been delivered going to the hospital with some kind of surgery, you have some kind of a problem and shows your weakness, you need to remember that Christ will not leave you or forsake you. The worst disease that is easy to forget is the malady of pride. We're all afflicted with it. It's a terrible disease. It takes you when you least expect it. I think I have finally come to the point in life when I am humble. No, you haven't. You just proved it. You've just proved it. My grace is sufficient for you, and he has to heal you of thinking that you are enough for yourself. And finally, in working for the Lord. Being weak does not mean you're not useful. Our weakness is not an excuse for doing nothing. It is a reason for doing everything in the strength of the Lord. And Paul's example, as well as the example of our Lord, speak loudly. 1 Corinthians 15. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Do you see? He was tempted to pride. I worked harder than any of them. Oh, well, come to think of it, it wasn't me. I'm able to do this, I'm able to do that, but it wasn't me. That's what he says. And it doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult to do the job you have to do. You have to have strong resolution and self-denial to be a parent, for example. It's not easy to be a parent. You might, children might think it's not easy to be a child. Wait till I get to be a parent. Well, you'll find out how hard it is to be a parent when you have your own children. And sometimes parents go, see, tried to tell you. Who is sufficient for these things, Paul says in 1 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Who is sufficient for, thing, for these things? Not you, not me. My grace is sufficient. We read Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord, not in yourself. Be strong in the power of his might, not in your might. Some Christians may have had to forsake family and friends, leave country, refuse a job, and make sacrifices, but God's grace is sufficient for you, all of you. You are weary. Come unto me, all you who are weary, we heard earlier, and I will give you rest. You will mount up on wings like eagles. You will walk and run and not faint. So, right now and the rest of your life, you'll have to say this to yourself. I am content with weaknesses. I am content with insults. How much do you like to be insulted? You're not doing a very good job. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. But you don't want to hear it either way. An insult? Somebody despising you, looking down upon you? Hardships? Not easy. Persecutions? Not fun. Calamities? Terrible. But I am going to be, Paul says, content for the sake of of Christ. You can't do that on your own. God must give you that kind of contentment with your situation, whatever it is. We started out in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We talked about comfort in affliction. Do you remember? We've come back full circle, haven't we? We accept, we even are content with those things, knowing God has a purpose. For once again, Paul had to learn as we must learn. When I am weak, 
then I am strong. Shall we pray? Lord God, we don't want to admit our weakness, and we'd rather not hear about your strength if it means we are to decrease. But you must increase, and we must decrease. Therefore, Lord, teach us how to be humbled, how to accept what you bring into our lives, and forgive us of our grumbling and our complaining, and help us to rest alone in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.